Science, exercise, nutrition, health, energy, passion. One year, no beer. This is the One Year No Beer podcast, where you will find all the latest tips, tricks, and hacks for a way to live better. Today I'm joined by a truly inspirational guest who is one of the world's most impactful and sought-after motivational speakers. He is also a business coach to organizations around the world and an expert on human behavior, performance, leadership, and personal and professional development. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Pete Cohen. Pete, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, look, it's uh, my absolute pleasure to to be here. Uh, congratulations with all the work that you're doing because, you know, when you say that I'm inspiring, you know, what you've done and what you're doing is, uh, you know, it's truly, truly remarkable. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we, uh, <laughs> we can't hear it enough because sometimes, sometimes you get naysayers, don't you? Uh, you get negative Nellies and um, they can drag you down. And then you have to focus when somebody says on a really positive comment of really letting that in and making sure that gives you fuel yeah. to continue. Well, you know, I was listening to someone talking uh, yesterday, uh, a woman called Brene Brown, who's uh, very well known in the kind of thought leadership world and talking about her big thing is about vulnerability and talking about it. And uh, she was talking about addiction. And, uh, you know, we're all addicted to something. Every single human being has that perplexity to let things get the better of them, them, for them to feel that that thing is on top of them. And I just don't think that there's any better human power than the power of, of, of uh, making choices where you feel like, look what I did. I could have did this, but I did that. Uh, and getting momentum around that, getting better at something and just feeling personal power. So whatever that is, for me, I just love it. I love it when, because I know the work that you're doing in terms of how energized and empowered so many people are by deciding to do something that a lot of people might not do. I love how you haven't actually been descriptive about what it is, because of course, and you totally get it, is that in reality, it doesn't really matter what the vice is, but ultimately the concept is about going against a societal norm and an expectation, changing a behavior gives you a big platform to transform other areas of your life, whether that was alcohol you were in the midst of or drugs or any of these other things that you might be in the midst of. Yeah, no, you, you, you make a, such an important point there because when, when human beings feel that they are in control and some, rather than something controlling them, I mean, look, the, the, one of the oldest stories in humanity is Adam and Eve, you know, and I'm not here to talk about the religious aspects of that, that story, but if you think about what it's all about, it's, it's about, for me, it's about temptation, you know, do not eat fruit from the forbidden tree, and then that's all they're thinking about, and then they end up doing it. Our, our ability to delay gratification, our ability to uh, make choices based on uh, having an idea of where we want to go in our life is where our power really is. And willpower outpredicts IQ. You can be the most intelligent person on the planet. Yeah, I mean, every, most people have heard of the, the marshmallow experiment. And, you know, you and I connected by, uh, you know, an absolute legend in the game, a living legend, I should say, uh, Joe DeSana. And I remember reading him, reading about him saying that he said to his son, he heard about the marshmallow test. Oh, no, no, no. Don't assume that everyone has heard it. So let's hear okay, it. Okay. So the, the, the marshmallow test is, 
it was done, it wasn't actually done around willpower, but as a consequence of this, it was done at a, a nursery school, a preschool in uh, Stanford in America. And these kids were told, Look, here's a marshmallow, I'm going to leave the room. And if I come back, and if you haven't eaten the marshmallow, you can have two. So, and this has been re recreated so many times and you can look at it online and you can see what people, how they reacted to this situation and the type of person that just would have just said, okay, fine. And just waited and not battered an eyelid or not had any drain in their willpower. They're very few and far between. Most people either ate it straight away or waited and start playing around with it. And then eventually they ate it. That's what I would have done. Mm -hmm. I, I, I would have gone through some serious angst and uh, I would have eaten. I'd have probably found a way to nick some more. Yeah, well, you know, you would have found <laughs> a way, right? But for, for us to do what was being asked would, was a big challenge. And those children that resisted have been followed for many years of their life, and they've been shown to be uh, less likely to be in broken relationships, less likely to be in, in debt. And I, and I read about this when I, when I was studying psychology, but Joe DeSana, the, the founder of Spartan Races, he said to his son, look, you're going to have one scoop of ice cream uh, and when I come back, if you haven't eaten it, you can have two. And when he came back, apparently his son said, how long do I have to wait till I can have 15 scoops of ice cream? You know, and uh, that whole concept of delaying something, I think is hugely powerful. I, I think it's different for different people. But that, you know, when people go, you know, I'll have that. And I could have it, but I won't. I'll have it tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes, you know, I could have that. I'll have that tomorrow. And then almost the feeling of not having it is better than the feeling of having it. Yeah. Absolutely. I've often said that I actually, um, in the early days, changed my relationship with alcohol from by, by, with Haribo. Um, so for me, I, I had this thing where I was like, I've got no willpower. I just always seem to crumble. And um, I was lo looking at that. I, was, I think I was reading a book and I can't remember. It was pro probably Charles Duhigg's book, um, The Power of Habit. And um, I said, well, you know, when somebody gives me a Haribo bag at the office, it's gone. It literally, poof, they're gone. Yeah. And um, uh, so I have no willpower around them. So I set myself up a little experiment. I bought a bag of Haribo and I lay out the Haribo across the top of my keyboard at work. And I set my phone alarm for 15 minutes with the message, you have a choice. And so all I did then was pick it up and go, no, I'm not going to have it this 15 minutes. And um, within an hour, I was like, okay, I've just proven that part wrong. I do have willpower. And I actually think that that really simple, tiny thing led on to so much other change um, because I'd started building a small platform in a small way. Yeah, and you know, like if you told people that, a lot of people would just think you're crazy. <laughs> As an athlete, you know, and I think we're all athletes of life, you know, I, I've, my background is, is, is sport and working with sports people, but I'd look at all of us, you know, every mere mortals every single day we're competing and it's so easy to give in to temptation and that can be a problem long term but most people maybe are living so much into today they don't really care about the consequences of what they're doing tomorrow but one day they will you know one day most people will they'll they'll maybe look back and wish that they had made some uh, lifestyle choices i mean for me drinking i grew up i went to you know i started i was in the pub until it went up from the age of how old was I? I think I was probably 13, 14 and they didn't actually ask me my age until two days before my 18th birthday. Um, you know, I grew up around drugs. I grew up around all of that, but I was very lucky because I had a couple of really bad experiences that really put me off drugs. Whereas a lot of my friends just carried on doing all types of, 
uh, all types of drugs. And then I went to a university that was a sport university. Uh, and it's just a massive drinking culture. More drinking with rugby was a bit worse than the football. I was in the football team, but it was still, you know, it's like, let's drink as many pints as it is our birthday. Hey, that's a good idea. <laughs> and, 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 and the thing is, for most people, they can do it when they're young. You know, most people can get away with it. Your equipment is, is in better shape. But you'll, for most people, after doing that for a while, your body just struggles with it. And that's where uh, hangovers come from. Mm. And I don't know about you. I hate, I like beer, but I hate hangovers. Hate I hate hangovers. I can't, I get up at four in the morning. I can't afford to have a hangover. Yeah. And some people think, oh, well, you know, what's wrong with you? Come and have a few drinks. Well, the mornings mean more to me than, than having a hangover the next day. But that's just me. <laughs> Absolutely. So while we're talking about you, let's give us a bit of background into Pete Cohen. Um, so my background was in fitness. I was a personal trainer. I uh, did a degree in sports science. I used to work at the Barbican in uh, at, the, at the Barbican, which was a homeless place, was the biggest gym in Europe. Then I studied psychology, uh, which really wasn't that interesting. I didn't learn very much at all. I just learned, yeah, I didn't really learn anything to be honest. <laughs> Self-efficacy, I thought that was fascinating, which was the work of a guy called Albert Bandora. This whole concept of if you believed. Uh, in something you could out predict someone who didn't believe but had superior ability to you that freaked me out that was like really um and i think the other thing i found very interesting was identical twins you know the the that kind of synergy and the similar thought process that uh an identical twin could have a headache and the, the other one phone them up and say you've got a headache haven't you i thought i found that was really really bizarre but i'm just fascinated in human beings. I've written 19 uh, books. A number of them are best-selling books. I'm wow. a sports psychologist as the Arsenal football team, people like Ronnie O'Sullivan. Uh, but I just, I, I'm learning, uh, you know, it sounds like a cliche. I'm constantly learning and evolving. I'm like you. I just want to give people a different perspective. I want people to stand in their own light. And I want people, in fact, this is the thing I'm working on so much at the moment is people being inspired and people seeing themselves in the movie business. I, I'm getting more and more people who are saying things like, people say, what do you do for a living? And they go, I'm in the movie business. And they go, what do you mean? I'm in the movie of my life, <laughs> you know? And uh, this was the movie I was in. I was in a horror film. I was in a <laughs> soap opera. I was in Casualty. <laughs> now I want to create this type of movie. And I, I'm very, very excited about that because... You know, we love films, right? We love films from Rocky mm. to Harry Potter to, you know, whatever it is. They're even Avengers. bringing out the new Rambo film, which is called Last Blood. Yeah. And maybe that will be the last one, but it does look <laughs> really good. And I will watch it because I've, I've bought in. I've bought into the Rambo franchise. I've bought into the Avengers franchise, the Batman franchise. But I want to buy into my own franchise. And I know that's exactly what you're doing. You are doing you know, you're building a, an incredible movie and it's not easy, you know, it, it is challenging. And, but I think the world needs more people like you and me who are prepared to say, you know, I want to do something epic with this life. I don't just want to sit here and just be like everyone else and go out and drink. And I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. And I know that one year, no beer is not, it's not about that. In fact, let me ask you, cause I'm quite, this is quite unusual for me to be interviewed. I'm the one who's normally doing a podcast. But, um, 
you know, tell me out of my own curiosity, what is it that's driving you and where, where do you see this whole thing going? Um, well, um, <laughs> am I doing the, no, no, I'm happy to talk about myself. You're right. Yeah, good. Um, um, okay. So, um, when I was, uh, um, a young child, I was ADHD and, um, never really fit in and really struggled with that. At six years old, I was offered either drugs or counseling and took counseling. I still never fit in. Um, at 14, um, bizarrely, I wrote a letter to Richard Branson and I said, I'm going to change the world one day. I'm looking forward to having lunch with you, which is odd for a kid from the Isle of Mull, but I'd always been given this gift from my dad, which was that you can be anything. Um, and I really felt that. I felt like I was shoulder to shoulder as a 14-year-old with anybody on the planet. I didn't feel, um, maybe that's just ego, I don't know. But, um, no, I don't think so. so um, and then the, the, I started several companies. My first company I started when I was 16. By the time I was 25, I'd tried five different enterprises. I went into oil broking through the TV program, The Apprentice. I was very successful at oil broking, but miserable, and it was making me unhappy. And then the alcohol was drinking regularly. I took a break from booze, and I was absolutely blown away with you know the impact that that had on my life. Yeah. Um, and then I think all of it came together with, in 2017, I sent a tweet to 10 journalists. Off of the back of that, I got featured on BBC World News, and a friend of mine called me up in Italy and said, I've just seen you on BBC World News. I think what you're doing is amazing. I'm meeting the Dalai Lama next week. Do you want to meet him? And a week later, I sat down with the Dalai Lama and uh, everything fell into place, everything. So I used to have recurring nightmares and this is part of PTSD. And I didn't discover this until I started going to deep meditation that I'd had an incident when I was six years old and I nearly died. And I actually rediscovered this by going through meditation. But near-death experiences in under six-year-old can cause PTSD-like symptoms and recurring nightmares. And those recurring nightmares, it was a sharp cylindrical tool and very electrical. I can't explain it. It was not anything real, but I had it again and again. It used to be very severe. It would wake me up at night. All of my life, I had this thing. Do you know what I knew what it was? Destiny. Yeah. Destiny. And so when people ask me, and this is the hard thing with what I'm doing, and people, an investor or somebody say, Ruri, you know, you have to separate yourself from the business. I can't. This is what I was here put on the planet for. I couldn't live another day being an oil broker, doing nothing to the planet when I knew I'd found my purpose. And this purpose was the most important thing for me. It was having that impact that I wrote to Richard Branson about that then led me to meet the Dalai Lama that made sense about my whole life. So it's a, a, an unbelievable driving force. And if you ask all of my team um, about how driven I am, you know, I'm unbelievably driven to yeah. have the impact. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, people naturally that want to a very long winded answer. <laughs> no, no, listen, it's great. I mean, you know, because when this podcast, podcast goes out, you know, I'm going to share it. So I want people to hear your story. It's me being selfish, you know, also me being selfish because I'm naturally a curious person. I, I'm always interested in what drives people because yeah. my goal is to inspire millions and millions of people all around the world. And when you listen to what drives us someone else, I, I you know, I, I think that deep down we're all there to be driven, but we, you know, Napoleon Hill wrote about this in Think and Grow Rich. And, you know, book came out in 1937. He reckoned only 2% of people 
are driven to move forwards to things. So most of us are waiting for a prognosis, a diagnosis, something to go wrong before we decide to rise up and go, you know what, I'm moving forwards. I'm dreaming forwards. Wow. And you think about it, that's the equipment we've all been given. We've all been given the ability to dream. We've all been given the ability to create. I never, I never, I was, I'm quite creative, but I didn't think of myself as creative. I was always driven to move away from the past. I mean, I had a very privileged upbringing, but that didn't mean I wasn't insecure and didn't think I needed to prove myself in this world, you know. But, you know, your, your story, uh, you know, my story, that's why Joe DeSana and I, I met him. We were speaking at a conference together. He didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was. And I was really taken aback listening to him, and he was taken aback listening to me. And at night, we were sitting around a table telling stories, and it was about 15 of us. And my stories were pretty damn good because I've got some good stories because my dad told me it's not what you know, it's who you know. So I know a lot of people. I've got a lot of good stories. But Joe's stories were like on a different level, like, you know, growing up in uh, New York and basically cleaning Queens. swimming pools for mafia bosses uh, and then seeing people being taken out of houses and rode up carpets and then uh, building swimming pools uh, and just, you know, just crazy stories of running all over the place. But then when I told him my story of what happened to me with my wife, you know, so my wife was given 18 months to live uh, eight years ago. It put us on an epic adventure of finding a cure for her cancer. But, you know, when I tell that story, it doesn't, it's not as, it, it, it doesn't seem as big to me. But, of course, when I tell it to you I'm, and many other people listen, they go, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. When you tell me your story about, you know, those dreams and what happened, it might not seem so big to you. But for me, stories change lives. Yeah. That is why people watch soap operas. That's why my, why my mom doesn't miss episodes of EastEnders and Casualty. She loves those programs. And it's just a story, but it's not going anywhere. And I think what you're doing, I get the impression, is you're trying to wake people up to the realization of if you can do this, if you could stop drinking, what else could you do? Amen. You know, and, and I, that, I really got <laughs> that. And I thought, and I, I got that. And I was thinking, okay, well, what could I do to help you? What could I do to support you in that mission? Because I want to do something similar, but I don't need the recognition. You know, you don't, it's not about that. It's much bigger. This is bigger than all of us, isn't it? I hundred percent. That is exactly the key. And that was the thing that happened with the Dalai Lama was, was this is moving through me. I am the vehicle. And it, you know, at the, at the time that I'm not, I won't be. You know, there's something when you're talking about meditating, you know, you know, I meditate every day and I've been meditating on, again, when you tell people you're meditating, a lot of people just think, why are you doing that? Well, why not? Yeah. I mean, you know, why the hell not? It's the most beautiful thing I, I, I know how to do, you know, and I'm, and I'm still learning how to do it because for me, I just love getting to that place where I feel like there's possibility, where I just feel like everything goes away and I just feel possibility. I can then go back to my reality of what is going on right now and the challenges that I face. But for me, I, that's one of the reasons I meditate. I just want to have a sense of possibility. And I'll tell you a pretty cool story, you know, because I think the universe is conspiring to do one of two things, help you or hinder you. And I think that's partly to do with how you're thinking. And if we all wake up to how we're thinking and what is happening as a consequence of that, I think it's quite powerful. But there was a TV documentary that was on recently about West Ham United ladies football team, the youngest football owner, and it's um, he's 18 years old. And the, the coach of the ladies team is um, 
a guy called Matt Beard. And I watched the series and I watched it with my wife, I watched nine episodes. It was really, really quite good. You know, and ladies football is, women's football has really taken off. It, it's really, I love to watch it. I think it's fantastic. And I just said to Hannah, I said, you know what? I think I might like to do something with that team. You know, I've not done anything in football for a long time. It might be, you know, yeah, but that would be a good idea. And I just kind of look up in the air as I'm starting to think about it and picture myself doing it. And then within a few days, it's not in front of me here, but something came through the letterbox and it was the local magazine where I live. You know, there's not that many people that live here. And it said, meet Coach Beard on the front. And I was thinking, who's Coach Beard? I opened it and it's, it's uh, this guy, Matt Beard, who's the coach of West Ham United. I'm thinking, what, he lives in Linfield? Yep, so he lives in Linfield. So then I find him on Twitter. I send him a message uh, and I, I tell him about myself. Within a few days, he's here. But immediately, he's looking for someone. He is looking for a, a psychological support of him, his team. And he asked me, you know, would you help us? Now, you, we could all just say that's random and we could all just say, well, you know, but I just figure that it's happening because I'm open to possibilities, right? I'm open to the possibilities of more, more what? More joy, more happiness, more, more of everything, more money um, rather than lack. And I think that's where a lot of us are coming from, a place of lack, a lot of, mm. a lot of place of stress. Suffering. We're just not open. We're just not open. And liberation comes, I think, from when people let go. When you let go of something that you're dependent on, you feel compelled to do. It can be quite tough for a little bit. But then after that, this, like you obviously experienced, and I've experienced that, the liberation of I am in control. I have the power here. So, yeah, I could talk about this stuff for days and days and days. I love it. Um, you mentioned about happiness there, and I know you've got a happiness equation, which, is, um, which has been very successful. What is, what is your happiness equation? Okay, so um, this was for a publicity stunt for Thompson Holidays, and it was in 2003. And, um, you know, I don't even have math GCSE. I'm, I'm, I lied about my maths and my English when I did my postgraduate degree, but they never checked. So, you know, I'm sorry, but that was only to be a teacher. So I'm sorry, but sometimes it was a, it was a white lie. And I was only a PE teacher, right? So anyway, um, so my math is terrible. But when we were asked to do this work, this guy came into my life who's an absolute legend. His name's Connell Platts. He's a business psychologist. The guy's unreal. Um, and we came up with this equation, or he did. We, we looked at some of the different elements. Um, and when it came out, it was broadcast in 27 countries around the world. People from Korea came over and thought we'd found the answer to happiness. Well, we know that happiness is, is relative, but it was just four questions. People can find it online. I think it's P plus three times H plus five times H, five times E, I think. And basically, it was a series of questions that then gave you a figure out of 100 but none of it was rocket science. The questions were about how much in your life do you feel that you have activities that you can engage in that when you engage in them, you forget about what you're doing. How many of you have a circle of people around you that support you? And, you know, all of these simple things that we know makes a happy life. But, you know, I think you'll probably relate to this is that Happiness seems to be something that people earn. You know, you earn the right to be happy. Whereas joy is free. You can be joyful for no reason. Mm. 
but it's a very, very vulnerable position to put yourself in. If you say, hey, I'm, I'm just so joyful, you know, way, you know, it's, it's amazing. I wish you could see what I'm looking out the window here. There's <laughs> a squirrel that's hanging upside down on the, on the, uh, he's really enjoying himself, obviously. <laughs> I thought maybe your neighbor was streaking naked through your garden or something. Oh, well, you know, I put the the thing up there because I wanted to see woodpeckers. I love woodpeckers. Yeah. And I've waited and waited and waited and waited. And eventually the woodpecker now comes down. Uh, but that's that, you know, that whole thing about, you know, patience. But that thing about happiness is that people think, you know, drinking is happiness, eating is happiness. And not any of those, I'm not saying that they're not, they don't necessarily bring us happiness, but the greatest joy is enjoyment. You know, the enjoyment that comes from inside, from feeling like, you know, I'm alive here. I'm, I, this, look at this opportunity. I don't need anything. That's what my coach said to me. He said, you know, happiness is really wanting what you already have. You don't feel that you need anything. You don't feel that you need anything else. So that was Nelson Mandela that I just, uh, not the real Nelson Mandela. It's a free fridge magnet from South Africa that just fell off the light that I hit. Good job it wasn't um, the real Nelson Mandela. That yeah. Embarrassing. Yeah, sorry, Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> Slapping him during your podcast. Yeah. You know what he's doing in your front room. <laughs> um, I like what, enjoyment. That's quite cool. Enjoyment. Yeah. If you think about what people want, I think people want to feel comfortable in, in where they are. They want to enjoy the body that they have. I just think we've all been hypnotized to believe that happiness is a future destination. And, and I think having goals is great, of course, but just enjoying the ride because, you know, your ride that you're on is similar to my ride. It's not easy. There's obstacles. There's, there's challenges all around everywhere, but, if we see where we're going, it makes dealing with that obstacle a, a lot easier. Yeah, I agree. So, do you think there's an element? I mean, I know you're you're um, you see the importance of of having a coach, and you are a coach. You you you'd be a coach, and now you've been asked to um, coach not just the ladies' football team, but also the coach of the ladies' football team to support them all. Um, and I think most people don't have a coach and most people don't think about coaching. And so what do you think about the importance of that? And, and um, what sort of expectations should somebody have? So um, yeah, I do believe everyone needs a coach. I mean, you know, or a mentor or both because life is pretty difficult. And if you, I don't believe there's anything. I don't believe that there's new ideas. I don't believe new ideas exist. I believe any idea that anyone has ever had, probably someone had a very similar idea to it. So if you come up with an idea, you're probably going to need some help. The idea might be, I want to be fitter, slimmer, healthier. The idea might be to grow a big business. The idea might be to stop feeling so trapped from your past. So if these are ideas, why try and do it on your own? Why not get someone who has helped other people um, you know, achieve that? Life is pretty challenging. But I, I remember, just open the window here, it's a bit hot. I remember working with the Kent cricket team in 1999. Uh, I love cricket. You know, I grew up watching it and, you know, I know it's a crazy game. So I was so excited about working with a professional team. But when I turned up, I was so unimpressed because I just saw this lackluster that existed within so many people who just wanted to go through the motions. And I think that deep down, most of us don't really, we want more, but we're scared to do more. 
Um, so I wanted to have that conversation with a few of them, like, come on, look, you're just hiding behind this. You're trying to be strong here, but you're weak inside. You know, you, you break easily, you snap easily. And when you work with great sports people, they've got a soft front, but they've got a strong back. They're resilient, you know, they, 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 they can be, they can come from the heart and they're humble. And um, so when I was, there was a few people like that and they were the ones who wanted to get better. You know, they were the ones that were like, you know, I'm great, but I want to be, I'm, I have this desire uh, to get better. I've actually forgotten. Oh yeah. I was going to say, I've forgotten what the question was, but, and I remember working with the Newport rugby team many years ago and they were playing, um, Newcastle in the Heineken Cup and Newport had a lot of Welsh players obviously but they had an ex-Kiwi an ex they had the captain of Samoa they had an ex-Australian international and when I finished talking all the Welsh people just left and the only people that stayed behind were the internationals and they just wanted to learn they were, wow. they were still curious especially yeah. the captain of Samoa who was like the scariest person on the pitch, but the friendliest person off the pitch, you know? And they just had that, I want to learn, I'm humble, that curiosity that, again, most people are frightened, right? Frightened to admit, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, but I'd like to find out, I'm curious. And yeah, I, I think there's, there's some, you know, when I think of one year no beer, I, I, in my mind, I picture men, you know? But I know that's not what it's about, it's about everybody, right? Yeah, but I, that's what I picture because I, maybe because I am a man and I know that the that whole well, beer is very masculine, isn't it? Yeah, beer. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I picture that kind of this is me. This is who I am. This is what I do. But are you happy? Yeah. Are you really happy? Are you living your life's purpose? Do you, if you were gonna, if you were gonna die and you were going to meet the person that you could have been, when you look at that person that you could have been, would he be the sort of person that just would have carried on drinking and partaking in a, a life of mediocrity? And by the, word, well, by the way, mediocrity means caught in the middle of a rugged mountain. So medius is middle, ocrity is rugged mountain. And that's where I think most of us are just conforming to a life of everything's, it's okay, you know, it's okay. It's, it's all right, isn't it? You know, it's all, yeah, it's, quite good really are striving you are at least trying to climb the mountain but you are caught in the middle of it yeah yeah i tried that yeah no no don't do that just stay here stay with us stay with us We're, let's just stay here no don't go up there what's wrong with you why are you meditating you know you're doing yoga what's wrong with you you're not drinking i remember those conversations <laughs> by the way yesterday you know you're not drinking no why what's wrong with you you know what, what what's happened I just, I'm not, I'm not, oh, come on, you know, what? And buying into that conforming of a culture. But I was lucky because I had a few friends that were like, you know, well, if you don't want to drink, it's great, good for you. You know? We just won't see you again. <laughs> yes, yes, we don't ever want to see you again. Right? <laughs> just don't turn up to anything we organize. Yeah. Oh, it's hilarious. Um Back then, you mentioned about resilience. I also know that you've got some strong thoughts about resilience and, and what the magic formula is there. And I think, ultimately, if we talk about, you know, 
what is required, the tools that are required to go and change your relationship with alcohol. You know, we, we created one year, no beer because we were in that environment ourselves because there is so much peer pressure, social pressure. Um, and, um, you know, even from our research, people have said, uh, I'll just drop this in here, but when we did our research, 93% of people had had a drink when they didn't want to. Um, and, um, you know, then 85% of people experienced peer pressure from friends. It was like 40% from colleagues and 20% from a boss. You know, it's, it, it was, there's a lot of peer pressure out there and that's what keeps people in that drinking. Oh, I don't think I, I couldn't do 90 days. I couldn't do 30 days because this is coming up or that's coming up. So I guess one of the things that people have to be is resilient. Um, they have to be resilient during a process where they're trying to change their identity. Their identity has been for a long time. Yeah, Pete, he's that legend who loves a beer. Pete, normal, usual. Yeah, mate. Um, and no, actually. Um, what? Have you changed your identity? Well, I'm trying to go through that process. Well, exactly as you said, I think resilience is really key. So what would you give us as your tips or advice? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. And I, I, the way I'd like to answer it is look at another word that begins with R, which is rejection. So uh, rejection is a really powerful emotion. And one of the reasons it's so powerful is rejection actually hurts. It's like someone has punched you. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the different theories about why that is. And one of the theories is that, that when we lived thousands of years ago in groups, but even before we could communicate like this, if you felt rejection, that basically meant you better watch out because you could be kicked out of the, of the, of the group. And if you're kicked out on the group, you're not going to survive because human beings then didn't do very well on their own. And actually, I believe human beings don't do very well on their own even today. And most of us aren't on our own, but we feel like we're alone because, you know, we don't tend to be in very supportive communities and, uh, and communities that are built on, you know, habits like, like drinking. So rejection, you know, that story that you told, the person that's going, well, no, no, or you were talking about me. No, I'll just have a sparkling water, please. You, you, we, I, resi I, I, I am opening myself up to being rejected from my, from my group. And then who am I? If I'm not that group, who the hell am I? So, you know, the easiest thing to do is just conform uh, because we want approval. We want to be in groups. And it was Napoleon Hill, you know, who, again, it wasn't Napoleon. He got the idea from Thomas Edison, you know, that whole thing of you are the sum of the five people that you spend most of your time with. So Absolutely. if you decide to go and hang out in a different community, then what well, to leave your community where are you going to go you're going to be out on your own and i know that's another big thing about one year no beer that you know your goal of having this these places all over these hubs all over the world is communities of people where it's okay you don't you can be anything you want to be and you're supported people aren't trying to say this is how you should be i i, I personally think that we hate conforming because at the beginning we just hate it who am I? What do I do? It's hard work to fit in. And eventually we become good at it. Yeah, there's we a become part good. Of us, for most of us that go, there must be more than this. Yeah. There's got to be. And that's why do you think so many people have a midlife crisis? That, that little sentence you just said there is decades, right? Conforming is teens and into your 20s, like must conform, 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 conform. And then you're like, hang on a minute, into your 30s and wising up and like, what the hell am I doing? And then yeah. 40s, you're like, complete midlife crisis. Stop calling. Stop. I mean, you're literally binning people off into your late, into your late thirties. Cause you're like, why am I even friends with you? 
Well, it, it, it's if you look at it from uh, you know chemistry, physics, biology, we have the capacity to live a very long life, about to about 120, right? So our body can regenerate about six times. So every 20 years, we have a whole new system. And I think one of the reasons we don't get anywhere near that age, and even if we get nearer to it, the last few years of our life are terrible. And I personally believe that part of that is, of course, our lifestyle. There's no question about that. What we think, what we eat, what we do. But also, what which is part of thinking, is we don't reinvent ourselves. You know, there, there is a story of an eagle. I don't actually think it's true, but an eagle gets to a point in its life. If it doesn't rip out all of its feathers and pick itself apart, it dies. Apparently that's not true, but I love the story. You know, a, a shrimp that can't shed its uh, shell, you know, the snake that can't shed its skin, it's going to die. And I think that if we don't look to reinvent and we go, you know, what's next? And you see people, and people, when I tell people I'm 49 years old, a lot of people I know, they think, really, you're 49? 49. And I think that part of that I feel so young is I want to reinvent. You know, yeah. I'm going to Boston, as you know, I just told you on Sunday to do some stuff for Spartan races. I'm going to Japan at the end of July, again, something for Spartan races. But I'm open. You know, I'm open to an adventure. I'm open to to another another ride, another another. So I want to reinvent. And once people get into that reinvention mindset, I don't know. I think everything does reinvent. Yeah. But you've got to be open to that opportunity in the first place. Yeah. So powerful stuff, right? If if somebody so in your in your mind, if somebody has um decided to take this alcohol-free challenge and is perhaps looking for motivation or thinking about doing it, what do you think they should do? And how do you think they should go about um smashing their new change, making sure this challenge sticks and finding that motivation to do it? What well, well there's a few things. Definitely you want to do something else. You know, the best way to break a habit is to find something else, but ideally find a habit that is going to serve you as a, like you said, you know, don't go from beer to Haribo, you know, unless you really want to, you know, I'd go from beer to, I don't you know, to being more active or uh, spending more time with your children or, or whatever, writing a book, put your energy into something else. Because if you don't, that energy that you put into drinking there'll be a part of you that just wants to do something with what you have normally done. And people who put a lot of energy into drinking, if they put that energy somewhere else, these people can be unstoppable. So focus on what else you're going to do. But I'd also focus on, you know, the whole why thing, you know, why, why would you want to do it? You know, by that why people say, you know, that whole Simon Sinek, uh, most people have heard of him, you know, it starts with why people don't buy what you do. They, they, they don't buy how you do it. They buy, you know, why? Why do you do that? The person who needs to buy the why is you. You need to buy your own why. And if your why is not significant enough, and, and this, is, this is really, really, really important, it's just like you need to buy that why every day. You need to wake up every single day and connect to that why because I promise you, if you don't, if you don't connect to it, you will be a victim like we all are at times because – the emotional connection to the, the feeling that you'll have, have of completing it, if you're not connected to that, good luck, you know? Mm. 
It's funny because um, those things you've just laid down are, you know, exactly what we lay out in, in, our, in our challenge. You know, reasons why I think is the day one, um, sitting down quietly with yourself, write down your reasons why you want to do this. Get deep, get emotional, save it as your screensaver on your phone because you're going to need it in those times of difficulty just that you can flick back to them and refer to those reasons why, make sure they're compelling. And, and- and the fact that it's also it's going to be hard, you know, knowing that. I mean, because you know, why is it hard? Well, there are some people who it's not hard for at all. There's a few percent of people that just it's like easy. Yeah, a very few percent. I reckon ninety eight percent of people it's really hard for a few reasons. You know, alcohol obviously is quite addictive, uh, physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, your brain favors familiarity, so it, you know all the social things that you do that maybe revolve around that. All of a sudden. And when things get difficult, uh, we tend to revert back to what we know. So knowing that it's going to be difficult, like, um, you know, the Stockdale paradox. So uh, Stockdale was a prisoner of war in, the, in Vietnam, and he survived. Fascinating story, actually, because I recently met someone who listened to him speak. So Stockdale was, he basically survived, and he said he survived because he knew it was going to be really, really tough. And he saw a lot of people die of a broken heart because they'd be saying, oh, we get out by Christmas, we'll get out by Easter. And, you know, that came and, and they didn't get out. Whereas him, he spent years in, in um, you know, uh, confinement. Uh, they beat him up. He beat himself up because they wanted to portray him uh, as someone who was being looked after. So they wanted to put him in front of, you know, cameras and pictures. And he decided, no, I'm going to beat myself up so that I look terrible. <laughs> they won't use me. It was like, he would do whatever it took to fulfill his mission. And his mission was to survive, you know? Um, and I don't know why someone would do one year, no beer, because everyone is different. Um, I would also encourage people to think about the impact that that would have on people around them. If you decided to do that, what impact would it have on your children, your spouse, all the people around you? What would be different as a consequence of that? Now, you might not know that, but you could dream and you yeah. could give it a go. Yeah. Um, you know, I talked to a good friend of mine. Um, it's a bit of a difficult situation. The poor chap has bounced off a lot of walls and, and um, got himself into a very difficult situation and been uh, through all the traditional services and routes, including rehab and bits and pieces like that. And um, I think because he's been through a lot of those traditional services, um, a lot of them, in a way can facilitate the behavior um, without realizing it. Um, so they continue to cast you out from society, label you with a disease, blah, 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 blah. And I had a long chat with him and I could feel and hear the lights turning on inside um, that there is nothing, there is no um, stigma. There, you, the door is open. What we need to do is reconnect you back to society, give you love, show you the meaning and purpose, allow you to feel connection. Um, and, and, and then there's some foundational stuff you can help to build on that. And um, yeah. anyway, so it's early days. Well, so that's, that's that vulnerability piece as well, you know, that it's okay for someone like that to be vulnerable and uh, vulnerability is just frowned upon. But you see really strong people, they're, they are, they're vulnerable. They're like soft at the front. Yeah. But they've got a strong back. And how you get a strong back is surround yourself with people like you. And the more that person spends time around you, he's, he's got a chance. He's got a chance to reinvent himself. He's got a chance to rise up and, you know, uh, like a Find the power. Plant, you know? Yeah. 
to be the Rocky, to be the, you know, the, you know, rising up. Tell him he should hear Eye of the Tiger, Rocky Three. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Put an Eye of the Tiger and jog to it daily. Yeah. Um, so th- amazing to have you on the podcast, Pete. Um, you mentioned, I just wanted to, you, you, you dropped in that you had some fantastic stories. So um, is there a story you'd like to share with the One Year No Beer audience? Yeah, I mean, uh, I worked with uh, <laughs> Ronnie O'Sullivan for two years, and that was very interesting. Uh, you know, if you don't know who he is, he's you know, he's five times snooker world champion. He's a fantastic guy, you know, and I, I have a lot of admiration for him. Um, he, he, I didn't know what an alcoholic really was. I mean, I, I you know, I thought an alcoholic is someone who drinks all the time, but some people don't have that. They just go on, they go on binges, you know, they could drink and then they could stop. And then, so I said to him once, I said, cause I watched him, became friendly with him. And I said, Ronnie, I don't really think, I don't think you're an alcoholic. Uh, and then he lost in the first round of the world championships in the first year that I worked with him. So he won four tournaments back to back or three tournaments back to back, which he never did. But because I told him that he convinced himself, well, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. And then he went on a binge for four months. And he wrote about that in his book, in his, if you read, not his first book, the, you know, when you write a book and then they bring out another version of it, I think it's called an epilogue, which is like, anyway, and he wrote that basically I said that. And I didn't mind him saying that and publicly people reading it because I'm big enough and bold enough to, to know that lesson. But I suppose, you know, what I say to people when I tell them that story is we don't often know what's best for people. And we should be very, in care- we should be very careful about giving advice to people, especially if they're not asking for it. And no one is the same, right? So no one person is the same. And some people, as, as I was surprised when you told me about this, one people, one year, no beer, then they start drinking again and it's fine. It's just, look what they did. It's not about, this is what you must do. Because no one, not everyone is the same. Um, you know, you can give certain things up. You can give alcohol up. You can give cigarettes up. You can't give food up. And some people want, Maybe, I know, some people can have a glass of wine and feel they've got to have 10. Um, But, you know, then there are some people who they just shouldn't drink. I remember that, actually, as a kid, looking back. There were some people. Oh, yeah. No. No, 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 no. no. It changes your chemistry. Don't drink it. You have a fight every time you drink. Agreed. (laughs) I was just stupid because I shouldn't have said that to him. So there you go. (laughs) Awesome. Pete, so thanks for, very much for your uh, your time today. We'll definitely do some more together because I think our missions are aligned and and we've both got a strong um, uh, friendship with Joe, who's Joe. a bit of a legend. So um, we'll be seeing some more of you. But listen, that's been really, really helpful today. Thanks so much. How do people find out some more about you if they want to? Um, well, I mean, I'm, listen, first off, I'm more than happy to help you. If there's anything I can do in, in your mission, you know, just, just obviously just let me know. As far as connecting with me, people can connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook. I would encourage people to uh, check out the book that we've just written, inspirators.me. That's I-N-S-P-I-R-A-T-O-R-S, inspirators.me. It's all about taking the lead in your life and, and building a movie uh, of your life. Um, and the people can get it from that website. Um, but yeah, listen, thank you for all of you that are listening. Uh, you know, anything is possible, right? Let's boldly go where no man has gone before. If we wouldn't watch Star Trek if they always went to the same place. And we think <laughs> I knew you were a Trekkie fan. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I love science fiction, you know. I love I just I love Terminator. They've got a new Terminator film coming out now as well. And Sarah Connor, 
the actual wait. actress who was in the I first know, one. She's in it. I've seen. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And so is our life. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful weekend. Thanks for listening to the One Year No Beer podcast. For a full list of episodes and to join in the challenge yourself, head on over to oneyearnobeer.com. One year no beer.com.